Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, uh, church family. Really excited to start this new series in God's Word called The Storyline of Scripture. When we think about all that is happening in our world and in our lives, when we think about racism, economic instability, political partisanship, when we think about so many aspects of our culture and society seem to be pulling apart or warring against one another, when we think about our own lives, the loneliness and isolation that we were already feeling from one another before this pandemic, Problems in marriages, struggles in child-rearing, illnesses, unemployment, all of these issues. It, It begs the question, what does all of this mean? Where is all of this heading? Now, thinkers, philosophers, influencers in our day have a number of different theories about about what is the story that we are following. We we have the the story of of unbridled technological progress, this sort of shiny, happy perspective that if if we get the right technology in our hands, uh, medically or in terms of communication, then then all of our problems will be solved. We'll have this techno-utopia that we will be able to live in. Other people would try to define the story of this world in terms of oppression, that there are oppressors and that there are victims and that all of our energy needs to be aimed towards pursuing justice for, for those oppressors and reestablishing and building up those victims. Still others are more concerned about ecology and the environment and and teach this story or this narrative that the planet is mad at us, that climate change is sort of the vengeance of planet Earth for us not taking care of it. And if we can just be done with plastic bags and plastic straws, then again, we will live in this utopia because of this breakdown with creation. Still others believe that that we live in a story of personal fulfillment, that who we truly are, the light that is inside of us is crushed and, and pressed down by the broader society and culture. And we need to find ways to let it out. Expressive individualism is the answer to all of our problems. Well, loved ones, As we start this series today, we're going to be looking at the storyline of Scripture. We're going to be looking at the Bible, not just as a collection of 66 individual books, which which we so often get the wrong idea about this book, but looking at it as one book, as one story, with, with one cast of characters, and we're a part of that story. And it's in the storyline of Scripture where our story and the world's story and God's story is revealed, where the fundamental questions of our existence existence. Why are we here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? And what is, what is wrong with this world and how can we make it right? These are the questions of meaning and purpose. They are all found in this book. 66 books written by 40 authors in three languages across 1,500 years tell one major story. And so leading up to Easter, we are going to be going through large chunks of God's word to, to try to discern and decipher what is the storyline? Where, where is all of this heading? 
And it's in the storyline of scripture where we find our story, where we find meaning and purpose. So we're going to begin at the beginning. The title for today's message, the first message in this series is In the Beginning. We're going to be looking at the, three, the first three chapters in the book of Genesis today. And so it's not too hard to find the book of Genesis. Open up your Bible. You got the title page, table of contents, and then there you are, Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to begin before we start to read and teach God's word. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that although there were many human authors who were filled with your spirit to compose your holy word, we recognize, Lord, that you are the author of this glorious story. And Lord, I pray, Lord, we are in such need of perspective in our age today with so much around us crumbling, with so much uncertainty, Lord, I pray that as we come back to the beginning, as we look at how it all started, as we look at how it all began to unravel, Lord, I pray that you would teach us and instruct us so that we could better understand you, Lord, and that we would better understand ourselves, And so that we could better understand our story. And so, Lord, we pray that you could do only what you can do. Speak, Lord. Let your voice be heard through your living and active word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The book of Genesis means beginnings. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning... And this is how the story begins. This isn't once upon a time. This isn't long ago in a galaxy far away. This isn't a a fable. This isn't just a made up story. This is truth. This is how it began. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Really, if you want to understand how to read the Bible, if you want to understand the story, it really just starts with those first four words, in the beginning, God. Once you understand that, once you understand that there is a God who created everything, then we can, we can make progress in understanding the storyline of the Bible. Some of us stumble over the miracles in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea, a worldwide flood, talking donkeys, women, women turning into a pillar of salt. And, and some people stumble over those miracles and wonder, how is any of that possible? Well, it's possible because in the beginning, God, there is a supernatural being behind it all. There's a supernatural being who started it all. He brought it to a beginning. And he will bring it to an end. He started the story and he's going to bring the story to a conclusion. And so if we're going to understand how we fit into the story, we need to understand how we relate to God. So if you're taking notes today that we're going to move in three sections, here's the first point. Point one, we are created in God's image. We are created in God's image. In the beginning of the story, God gets to work right away. Verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Underline in verse 2 where it says that, that the earth was without form and it was void. It was formless, it was without form, and it was void. It was empty. The world was empty. And what we see God doing over the next six days is forming the world, the world and filling 
the world. Let me show you what I mean. I've got a little a diagram here I want you to see. On day one in verses three to five, we see God creating light. He forms light. And then in verses six to eight on day two, he, he forms this expanse. It's the sky. It's air. He, he creates. He forms the, the expanse. And then verses nine to 13, he creates land and vegetation. So the earth was formless and he is forming it. And then we get to day four, five, and six and he moves from forming the earth to filling it. It's no longer void. He created light and then he fills that light with the sun and the moon and the stars. He created the expanse separating the waters from the waters. And now he creates fish in the sea and birds in the air. He created land and now he creates animals to dwell on the land. So God, over six 24-hour periods, creates the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and it was void and God formed it and he filled it. Now some of you might have some questions about a science. Some of you might be saying, well, doesn't the world appear to be much earlier? How could it be possible that, that God had created light before he created the sun. How is it that vegetation was able to survive on planet Earth when the sun hadn't been created until day four? Well, again, remember Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Well, well doesn't, doesn't, doesn't the world appear much earlier? It, it doesn't appear when we, when we look at the, science, the scientific evidence around us. I mean, don't scientists believe that there's billions or millions of years going back? How could all of this happen in less than a week? Why does everything look old? Well, again, in the beginning, God. Remember when Jesus at the wedding at Cana turned water into wine. Now, what is the normal process for making wine? You gotta wait, you gotta wait for grapes to grow. And then you have to crush those grapes and get the juice. And then you have to allow that, to, that juice to ferment, to become wine. It's a long process, but in an instant... Jesus created wine. He was able to take something that requires a long process and do it in an instant. Adam and Eve were created as adults. It normally takes time to grow up to become an adult, but they were created as man and woman. You can have light without the sun. Revelation 22 verse 5 says that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun because God will be their light. So we are introduced to the main character of the story. It is God. And he creates out of nothing. He creates with his word. Now this is, this is absolutely essential for us to understand. The main character in the story is God. You see, our biggest problem is that we think that the main character in our story is us. And that God somehow plays a supporting role in helping us achieve ours. That's not how it's supposed to work. God is the main character. We are not including him in our story. He is inviting us into his. Now let's zero in on Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created 
them. We are created in God's image. What does this concept of being made in the image of God mean? Let me break it down for you in three ways. You can see this coming up on the screen. The image of God refers to relationship, reflection, and representation. Relationship, reflection, and representation. On day six, on this same day, God created all of the animals, but none of them were given this this privilege of being created in the image of God. No other creature was given this distinction because human beings were created to relate to God. They were created to be in relationship, not just with one another, but in a relationship with their creator in a special way. He created human beings to be in his image in terms of relationship. Also in terms of reflection. Adam and Eve were to mirror God. They were to reflect him because they were made in his image, just like children look like their father or take on characteristics of their mother. God, as their parent, as their creator, as they bear his image, they do the kinds of things that he does. God is a God who speaks. He just spoke the universe into existence and he has given human beings the unique privilege of speech. He is also a creative God, which we see in Genesis chapter 1, filling the earth, forming the earth. And we, although God can create something out of nothing, we have the ability to create, to build things, to design things. Now, there's limits on how, on the power of our speech. We, we can't speak something into existence like God can. There's limits to our creative powers. We can't create something out of nothing like God can, but we reflect him. So we relate to him, we reflect him, and then lastly, we represent him. Look in verse 26, he says, and let them have dominion. You see, God is the king, and we part of reflecting him is that Adam and Eve were intended to be king and queen of the world. They were to have dominion. They were like vice regents. They were supposed to represent him. And then he fleshes out that assignment by giving them several other uh, instructions about being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. This is what it means. Listen, every human being on planet Earth, in the womb, out of the womb, male, female, doesn't matter about skin pigmentation, whether they are unborn, whether they're able-bodied mentally or physically disabled in any way, every human being is created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect and honor. It's also important for us to notice here that God created them male and female. That God created them male and female. It's so important for us to understand this, especially in our day. When our church was first planted, this is what our doctrinal statement said in terms of uh, anthropology, in terms of what we believed about man. Here it is. We believe that God created mankind, male and female, in his own image and likeness. That, that, was, that was our only statement about, about 
what it means to be created male and female. Our elders have been working on, and it's so important in all of the confusion in terms of gender identity in our world today. Again, even if someone struggles with gender identity, they are still an image bearer who needs to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect in all of our interactions with them. But here is, here is how we are fleshing out this understanding. We believe a person's biological sex accords with his or her gender identity as male or female, which God, our creator, designed at conception and gave as gifts to be embraced with gratitude and worship. Again, our aim here is, is to bring clarity into all of the confusion for, for us to accurately represent what the Bible teaches. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we didn't need to elaborate on what it meant to be created male and female. But now in an effort to love our neighbor, we want to be clear what the Bible teaches. Our statement goes on to talk about marriage. Marriage is a holy covenant and lifelong union between one man and one woman as designed by God for his glory. For a husband and wife's enjoyment of companionship, sexual intimacy, and procreation. And to signify the covenant love between Christ and his bride, the church. God designed sexual intimacy to be expressed and consummated only between a man and a woman when they are united as one flesh in marriage. Again, our original doctrinal statement as a church didn't even have a statement on marriage. It, it, didn't, it didn't seem to be necessary. But again, we want to love our neighbor by speaking the truth in love. Now, of course, if our neighbors disagree with us on, on this issue, if our neighbor happen to be li- happens to be living in a different way, the world would say that the only explanation for why, what, why we believe what we believe would be because of hatred or because of fear. But that's not, that, that's not true. That can't be true of the church. We must love God and love our neighbors. <clears throat> and so we do not love our neighbor by glossing over our differences, but caring enough about people to share with them what matters most to us and listening to what matters most uh, to them. So God created them male and female. Now look at verse 28, and God blessed them. Item number one on God's agenda for humankind was to give them blessing. He wanted to shower his favor and his grace and his love on them. His intention was to bless them and he blessed them by giving them responsibility. He didn't bless them by telling them, just just go put your feet up, just go do nothing. No, he, he blessed them. Part of the blessing of being made in the image of God is being entrusted with responsibility. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth, be fruitful, produce more image bearers, more kings and queens that will relate to God and reflect God and represent God. And then it says, and have dominion. There it is again, this idea of ruling and reigning. Allow God to rule over you and you will rule over fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. Then look down at verse 31. He says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. 
Then in chapter two, verse one, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all, his, all of his work that he had done. God rested. And we see all throughout the New Testament that God is inviting us into his rest. The, the parable of the servants, enter into the joy, enter into the rest of your master. Hebrews chapter three is all about entering into God's rest. Then the rest of chapter two is really this zeroed in focus on day six. Day six is when God created the animals and all, all, the, all the creatures that roamed on the earth. And day six is the day that he created humankind. And on, uh, in chapter uh, two, verse seven, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we have this added detail about how God created Adam. He formed him from the ground. He breathed into him his spirit so that he became a living creature, a spiritual being. Then he puts him in the garden. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Adam was given the responsibility of working in the garden. There is dignity and importance in our work. Some people think that they, you know, they serve God on Sunday or they serve God when they lead a small group or teach Sunday school. But when they, when they go to the accountant's office or when they go to the cashier's desk or, or when they do landscaping or plowing snow, that they're... That's just work. That's not for God. That's not how it's supposed to be. No, we are created to work and we are to work for God's glory. And one of the major things that we ought to be concerned about in our culture right now with what's happening in our economy is we are taking away, Lord willing, temporarily, but this will do damage in our culture. People were created to work. And if we are giving people money without them having it as a reward for their work, we are, we are short-circuiting something of what it means to be made in the image of God. God worked for six days and created the earth. And he gave Adam the dignity and privilege of reflecting him by working and he was to protect the garden as well. Now look at chapter two, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God lays out here one rule, one rule. You, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But notice, before he even gave the rule, he said, you may surely eat of every tree. God is a generous God. He is a giving God. There's all kinds of trees in this garden that God has put Adam in. But there is one rule. God is the law giver. Then we see in then we see the creation of Eve in uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. All through creation, God was saying, it is good, it is good. At the end of every day, he was saying it was good. And then he looked at Adam on his own and said, it is not good. Human beings need to live in community. 
He says, I will make a helper fit for him. God wasn't giving Adam a maid or a servant or a personal assistant. That word helper is the same word used to describe how God serves his people. Verse 21, God performed the first surgery. He put him under divine anesthetic. He had him fall under a deep sleep. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from man He had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Just like a father walks his daughter down the aisle, here is God walking Eve down the aisle to her her husband, Adam. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He immediately asserts their equality. We're the same, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the first marriage. Marriage was God's idea. Marriage was not a human invention. It was something that was God-given. Now, Genesis chapter 2 could have been happily ever after. They're living in the garden. They're they're. In the presence of God, there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no illness, nothing has gone wrong. But all of this sets the stage for chapter three. And that brings us to our second point. So point one is that we are created in God's image. Point two is we have broken God's law. We have broken God's law. Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? A quick note about the serpent. We know as we read the Bible as one book, in the the first book, Genesis, we're introduced to the serpent. It's not until the last book where we're given clarity that this serpent is in fact Satan, that he is Satan. The devil, that's Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2. If you want to know more about how Satan came to be Satan, how he came to be cast down to the earth, uh, you can uh, check out Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28. We don't have time. We're just focusing our attention right now on Genesis chapter 3. And notice what the serpent says to the woman. He begins by saying, did God actually say He immediately calls God's word into question. God was the lawgiver. God was the creator. And the foundation begins to to erode when we start to question God's word. When a church starts to think, well, did God actually say, or can we actually trust what, 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 what this says here? Do we really need to follow this? That is when a church is, is taking a step in, in following Satan rather than following God. He starts by questioning God's word, and then he exaggerates God's word. His word. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Remember what God told Adam. All the trees are yours except one. So he immediately starts to introduce this idea that God wasn't good, that God wasn't generous, that he was stingy, that he was somehow intent on holding things back from Adam and Eve. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
Now we don't know why Eve added this part to the command, but we, we, we know that's never a good thing. It's never a good thing when the people of God start to doubt God's word, and it's equally never a good thing when the people of God start to add to God's word. I mean, it's hard enough to follow God's commands just to begin with, let alone trying to add additional ones. You see, Eve had added this additional, probably just to try to stay back from it, to make sure she doesn't get too close to the edge before she falls over. But when she did reach out to touch the fruit, if she had added to the command, when she didn't immediately die, when she touched it, you got to think that she starts thinking, well, maybe this serpent is right. We can't add to God's word. Now, rather than Eve trying to reason with the serpent here, rather than her saying, no, 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 we, 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 just, we just can't eat that one, the, the, the fruit from that one tree, let alone touch it. Listen, rather than doing that, you know what? It would have been a lot better for Eve to say something like, are you kidding me, snake face? We're in paradise right now. And the God that you're questioning made all of this, made me and made you. If he says we're not supposed to do it, that's the end of it. That would have been a lot better for her to say. And, and that is what we need to say when, when we are tempted by the lies of the enemy, when he comes to try to deceive us. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So now, so at first he was questioning. Now Satan is just flat out lying. Remember what Jesus said about Satan in John chapter eight. He is the father of lies. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his nature. He says, you will not surely die. D.A. Carson was so helpful in pointing this out. Listen, the first doctrine to be denied was the doctrine of judgment. Not the doctrine of the Trinity, not even the doctrine of the existence of God. Satan's fine if you're an atheist or if you believe in God or whatever. But if Satan can take away the threat or the reality of judgment, that we are accountable as creatures for our actions to our creator, then that changes everything. Remember, Satan hates God and therefore hates us because we are his image bearers. Satan knows already that he's destined for the lake of fire and he wants as many people to come down there with him. So he lies. He says, you will surely not die. Adam and Eve are not here. They're buried in the ground somewhere. They did die. Satan was not telling the truth. And he says, you will be like God. You see now here, here in verse five, where he says, you will be like God. This is where we're getting at the essence of what it means to be tempted. We are getting at the core of what sin actually is. We get the wrong idea when we think that sin is merely law breaking. It's not simply law breaking. It's law making. In verse five, he says, you will be like God. God. And then he says, knowing good and evil. When, 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 when the serpent is talking about knowing good and evil, he's not just talking about, no, no he's about knowing the difference between good and evil. No, he's talking about having the privilege of determining what is good and what is evil. To make their own rules, not to be a lawbreaker, but to be a law maker. 
You see, this fruit in the garden, it introduces us to the concept of idolatry, which is found all throughout God's word. It was never about the fruit. It was about what the fruit could do. They wanted to make the rules themselves. Every idol in scripture, it's never about the statue. It's never about the false God. It's about what you think that statue or that false God or that fruit can do for you. That's the same in our lives today. We have different kinds of idols, but ultimately it's our quest for moral autonomy and significance apart from God. Notice how in verse six that Eve saw that it was good for food and a delight to the eyes. It was good for food and it was delight to the eyes. Does that mean that this was the only tree in the garden that was good for food and a delight to the eyes? Look over just across the column in your Bible to chapter two, verse nine. I didn't read this verse initially because we're trying to keep a a, a quick pace here, but Genesis two, verse nine, it says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree, notice this, that is pleasant to the sight, check, pleasing to the eye, and good for food, check. It wasn't the beauty or the nutritional value of the fruit. This fruit looks and tastes exactly the same as all. The the kicker is what comes next. It It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And what comes next? And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That was the fundamental difference. It wasn't just that she saw it and it was attractive. It wasn't just that it was good for food. The only reason why she took the fruit was that she thought she would be wise. She thought that she wouldn't need God. She thought that she would be able to make her own rules. And we are living in a world that is desperately trying to make their own rules. And the rules are always changing and morphing and developing. Then in verse six, we, we're in, we get an update on where Adam has been all of this time. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. Notice this, who was with her. The whole time, Adam was silently observing all that was taking place. Adam, who was the one before Eve was even created, he was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. To keep means to guard like a goalkeeper guards the net. Adam's job was to keep the garden, to guard it. He failed. He was the one that was given the law. He's the one who should have stepped in as soon as the serpent opened his mouth. He was the one who should have corrected Eve when she added to the command. He was the one who should have said, don't touch that. But Adam failed in his responsibility. And so here's what ends up happening. Adam and Eve thought that they would somehow become equal with God. They weren't sure really how their status with the serpent would, or their relationship with the serpent would go. But here's what ends up happening. The intention was that God would reign over humans and that humans as image bearers of God would reign over the creatures. But then what ends up happening is the creature, the serpent, is now ruling over Adam and Eve. They're not following God's word anymore. They're following the serpent's word. And Adam and Eve are now trying to put themselves in the place of God. 
at what ends up happening here in this moment, and there's so many places in Scripture where you can see that this is true, is that Adam and Eve abdicated their, their royal status in trying to dethrone God, enthroning themselves. You can't take God off his throne, but they took off their own crown and placed it on the head of the serpent. Luke chapter 4, when when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he, he tells him to bow down before him. And he says to you, if you bow down, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Luke 4 verse 6, to you I will give this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. Who delivered the kingdom and the authority and the dominion over all the kingdoms of the world to the serpent, to Satan? It was Adam and Eve when they followed his word rather than God's word. You see, we think that it's either, you know, you can serve God or serve yourself. Now, there's no such thing as serving yourself. It's either you serve God or you serve Satan. You might not even think Satan exists. He's fine with that. But he is the one who had been given by Adam and Eve the authority to rule over the kingdoms of this world. Then things begin to unravel in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. I love that. I love that. I love Evan's baptism testimony this morning, which, which came through so clearly. Did you hear what Evan said? He said, God came looking for me even when I wasn't looking for him. This is the God that we serve. They are hiding from him. They are afraid of him. They are ashamed of what they've done. They had just tried to dethrone him. And yet he calls out to them. Where are you? As if God doesn't know where they are. He's calling out to them for their sake. He says, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Remember the beauty at the end of Genesis 2 that they were naked and unashamed. Now they are ashamed of their nakedness. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? They were naked. They were hiding. They were afraid. They were ashamed. Look at Adam's response in verse 12. That the man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This is where the victim, the victim mentality kicks in. Where Adam says, it's Eve's fault. And even in saying that it's Eve's fault, look at what he says. The woman whom you gave me. Actually, God, this is your fault. I'm just a product of my environment. It's, it's my family. It's my surroundings. It's not my fault. And then Eve chimes in in verse 13. The, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. The devil made me do it. I'm just a victim. It's not my fault. They want all of the autonomy. They want all of the responsibility. They want to decide what's right from wrong, but they won't take responsibility when things actually go wrong. So then the Lord lays out several curses and judgments. 
Beginning at verse 14, he speaks to the serpent. God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's an incredible promise here in this curse that's given to the serpent, that there is an offspring that is coming, an offspring that although his heel will be bruised, he will one day crush the head, not just of a snake, but the serpent that is behind this snake, the, the, the devil, the, the enemy, the accuser of the brethren. There is a promise of this offspring. This is what theologians have called for years the proto-evangel. Proto means first, like a prototype. Evangel means good news. This was the first mention of the good news. Things had just gone wrong, and God has already made a promise on how to make things right. He says three things about this coming Savior, that he will be born. He's going to be an offspring born in a unique way, not an offspring of the man, but an offspring of a woman pointing ahead to the virgin birth. It also points to his suffering. His heel is going to be bruised, but there's going to be victory. He will crush his head. He will bruise the head of the serpent. So that brings us to our third and final point today. Point three, we have hope in God's promise. We have hope in God's promise. Verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Notice how the curses that affect the woman are directly related to the, to the image bearing responsibilities and privileges that were given to Adam and Eve. They were told to be fruitful and multiply. And yet now there's going to be pain and childbearing. And now there's going to be a breakdown in the relationship. She's going to have a desire to want to overthrow her husband and her husband is going to rule over her harshly. That's going to make it hard to be fruitful and to multiply if, if men and women are at, are at odds with one another. And then the curse to Adam in verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Just stop there for a minute. It's never a bad thing to listen to your wife. That's not what God is getting at. He's getting at the fact that he, he listened to his wife rather than listening to God. He says, cursed be the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken and, and for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. The ground is cursed. Remember, remember the image bearing responsibilities and privileges. They were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. But now the earth is going to fight back. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles. Now they've got to work by the sweat of their brow. So Adam is going to be spending his whole life trying to subdue the earth in this battle against creation to produce crops so that they can survive. The struggle for survival. And ultimately, Adam's going to lose and the earth is going to win. Adam is going to get swallowed up by the earth. He came from dust and he is going to return 
to dust. You see, what we see here happening in Genesis chapter three is a breakdown in all relationships. Let me, let me show you what I mean here in this final diagram. The relationship with God and human beings is broken. They were afraid and they were ashamed and they hid. The relationship between men and women is broken down. The men want to rule. The women have a desire to, uh, to rule. The breakdown between humans and creation is broken. Thorns and thistles are growing. Everything is broken. But we have hope in God's promise. Look with me at verse 20. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has come, become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If you read Genesis chapter two, it's not just one tree. There's two trees in the garden of significance, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Adam and Eve never ate the tree of life. And God prevents them from doing so really as a mercy for them to live on forever in this state of sinfulness would have been more tragic than dying and returning to the dust of the earth. And the whole storyline of scripture is how can the people of God come back under, away from the rule of the serpent and under the rule of God? How can they get out of the cursed land and return to the paradise of Eden? How can they get back and eat from the tree of life that's being guarded by a cherubim with flaming sword? How can they find their way back to the tree of life? Well, there's a little hint in verse 21. Do you see it there? The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. One short little verse. We see Adam and Eve being clothed. They tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves. It didn't work. But God covered their shame. And how did he cover their shame? He covered their shame because an animal died. What we're gonna see as we go through the storyline of scripture is that dead animals show up at key moments. Pretty much every important moment in the Bible storyline, there is a dead animal. And here it is, that a sacrifice needed to be made in order to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. A sacrifice is, needs to be made in order for us to cover our shame. And we have a promise that that sacrifice is coming. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Colossians chapter one, verse nine says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Colossians 3.10 says that he is restoring us into the image in which we were created. Adam was tempted on a full stomach in the middle of paradise. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness without eating for six weeks. 
Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Romans 5, 12 to 21 says that sin and death came through one man, Adam, but grace and the gift of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Adam handed over his dominion to the serpent. Jesus said in John 12, now is the time for the ruler of this world to be cast out. Adam's sin brought on a curse which made thorns grow. Jesus put a crown of thorns on his head, bearing that curse. Jesus died the death that Adam and Eve and you and I all deserved to die. Jesus suffered on the cross. The serpent bruised his heel, but he rose again on the third day. He crushed his head. Adam was a gardener. Mary Magdalene mistook Jesus for a gardener when he was resurrected. Was that really a mistake? Or was Jesus really just fulfilling the image-bearing responsibility where Adam failed? Jesus was the true gardener. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Satan had it, but he had it temporarily. He had the crown, he had the crown. He was running around like he ran things, but now we know who's in charge. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And the God of creation, going all the way back to chapter one, who said, let there be light, has done a work of new creation in our hearts, 2 Corinthians 3 verse four, saying, let the light shine in the darkness, in the darkness of Adam and Eve's heart, in the darkness of Ted Duncan's heart, in the darkness of all of our hearts. Praise the Lord. Jesus alone is worthy. He is the hero of the story. And everything that is good in Genesis 1 and 2 and everything that is wicked and evil in Genesis 3 all finds its ultimate resolution in the King Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken And Lord, I pray that as your word has so much power, power enough to speak stars into existence, powerful enough to to create the entire cosmos, I pray, Lord, that your word would speak and would not return empty, Lord, but that would accomplish its purpose even now, even for for the handful of worship team members that are in the auditorium right now, for the hundreds of people that are watching from home right now, may your word transform us and May we see Jesus as our Savior, as the one who crushes the head of the snake. Lord, we pray that you would draw us close. Protect us from temptation, Lord. Protect us from wanting to make our own rules. Protect us from wanting to live for our own glory. God, protect us from thinking that the story is about us and that we are the main characters. Lord, help us to live in and embrace and have faith in and find our hope in your story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.